0: On June the 2nd, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated at Westminster Abbey. That day at her coronation, she received a robe that was sewn out of golden thread. She received the, a crown that had 444 precious stones and was made of pure gold. She received the ring of the sovereign. The Sovereign's Ring contains 14 diamonds. It has an octagonal sapphire and crested with a square-shaped ruby. She received two different scepters. The first scepter that she received was the scepter of the cross. It was representative of her position as head of state. It contains 333 diamonds, 31 rubies, and 7 sapphires. At the top of it is the colon and one diamond, considered and called the great star of Africa. For it is a 540 carat diamond, the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. The second scepter that she received is the scepter of the dove. Where the scepter of the cross represents her position as head of state, the scepter of the dove represents her, her position as head of the Church of England. The scepter of the dove contains 285 precious gems, 94 diamonds, and 53 rubies. The crown jewels are are housed in the Tower of London and they are listed officially as being priceless, as being representative of the queen, the sovereign, the monarch in all of their glory, in all of their splendor, in all of their prosperity, and in all of their power. This morning we're going to see a coronation of a different type. We're going to see a a coronation and the robe that will be draped over the king of kings will not be sewn out of golden thread. Rather, it will be the scarf taken from one of the centurions doing the execution. We're going to see him receive a crown, but the crown will not contain precious stones. It will not be put together from pure gold. It will be woven together from the thorns of the earth. He will receive a scepter, but the scepter will not contain a 540 carat diamond. No, it will be a blood drenched reed that was used to stripe his very own back. This morning, we're going to see the coronation of the King of Kings, except he will be coronated as the suffering servant pictured by Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me now to Matthew chapter 27 where we will read of this bloody and harsh coronation. When you get to Matthew chapter 27, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We'll read Matthew chapter 27. We'll begin in verse 27 and read through verse 44. God's word says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hell, king of the Jews. They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him out of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on 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 the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. We pick up in our passage this morning where we left off last week with the scourging of Jesus. If you know anything about scourging, there would have been a a post that would have come up about navel high and they would have bent the condemned man over the the post and chained him and tied him off to his own ankles. There, there would have been a cat of nine tails, a whip with nine different pieces of leather that would have contained bone and rock and metal balls at the end that would... Would uh, would tenderize and then strip the flesh off of the back of the condemned man so that the entrails were exposed. The purpose of the scourging was to weaken and to ha- the man and to hasten his death and crucifixion because crucifixion could take days and days and days because ultimately you hang there until you suffocate. And so the scourging was a way of humiliation, but it was also a way to to quicken and hasten the death so that it would come about faster than is expected. And what we see is that after Jesus was scourged, he was brought before, it says, the whole battalion, the whole cohort of soldiers. A cohort of Roman soldiers would be 600 men. So we have Jesus here standing before 600 men, and all 600 men begin to hurl insults at him and begin to mock him and begin to make fun of him. They take what they have, their, their own robe, and they drape it over his raw and striped back with the fabric clinging to his blood. They weave together a crown of thorns and press it down upon his back. They take one of the canes that they've just used in the scourging and they place it in his hand. And they begin to say, all hell, king of the Jews, watch out everybody. We've got a king here. We've got the Messiah here. We've got one who believes himself greater than Caesar says, after they've mocked him, they begin to spit on him. There would have been so much spit that the blood would have been watered down and discolored altogether. Imagine how much spit 600 men can create. They begin to punch him and to strike him and to beat him down. The king of glory. The king of glory in his own coronation. The King of Glory receiving a crown, the King of Glory being robed, the King of Glory being sceptered. Except it doesn't look very glorious. Instead, this time, it appears as though the King of Glory will go through the agony. He will be crushed for our our iniquities. As we come into Matthew chapter 27, what we begin to see, I think, are three clear pictures, at least three clear pictures. And these three clear pictures show us who this king is, and they show us why this king matters, who this king is, and why this king matters. The first picture, I think, that we see here in Matthew chapter 27 is we see mankind living under his curse, mankind living under his curse. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve make a decision that would affect all of their lineage after them. They make a decision that leaves an inheritance for their children, an inheritance for their children's children, and their great-great-great-grandchildren, and even us today. God had placed them into a perfect garden, a place of, of of fruit and honey of a place in which the humans were to thrive and to reign with dominion and to display his image for all to see and right in the center of the garden he had placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God had told Adam everything else that you see is yours everything else you see you can have but if you eat of that tree if you eat of the fruit of that tree you will surely die And the serpent comes, and the serpent deceives, and the serpent confuses. And Adam and Eve, as though they are entitled, believe that they are supposed to be equal with God. Believe that they are supposed to know what God knows, and be able to do what only God does, and be in the position that God himself, as the creator of the universe, rightfully has. And so they go and they eat of the tree, believing that God has withheld goodness from them. Believing that, that God has withheld from them their very birthright, and by partaking and rebelling against the design of the Lord, they are enter into a curse from the Lord. It is a curse that is more gracious than they deserve. God had told them that they would surely die, yet He doesn't murder them He doesn't kill them immediately. He lets them live longer than they should have ever lived. He lets them live better than they should have ever been able to live. He lets them have children and enjoy the earth that He has made. But it is a curse nonetheless. A curse that affects their mind. A curse that affects their family. A curse that affects their marriage. A curse that affects their work. A curse that ultimately will lead to the death of themselves spiritually and physically and eternally. A curse that has brought a schism, a fracture between mankind and his creator. Mankind and God himself. And in Matthew 27, we see the clearest picture of the effects of that curse as we anywhere we see in scripture. We see the impact of the curse of man, the curse of mankind, the curse of sin more clearly in Matthew 27 than perhaps anywhere else throughout all of the Bible, throughout all of human history. First thing we see is that we are hateful. We are hateful. Think about what it says. Three different times in our passage, it says that they mocked him. They mocked the Lord Jesus. Two more times, it said they either derided him or they reviled him. That is, they weren't just content to reject the King of Kings. They weren't content to just, to just exile the Lord Jesus out of his homeland. They weren't content to even just kill him. No, they had to humiliate him. They had to humiliate him. What does it say about us that we would humiliate the king of kings? What does it say about us that we would humiliate the son of God? What does it say about us that God sends a savior for our good and for our benefit and for our deliverance? And when he comes to us, we hang him on a cross. We mock him and we bow down to him and we spit upon him and we strike him. What does it say about us? It's a picture of the hatred of every man faces and every woman battles with. And we see that the hatred, the the mockery, the humiliation, it comes from every class of person represented, right? You'll notice throughout our text that first it starts off with the Gentile Roman centurions, the, the Roman soldiers. They're mocking him. He wasn't even a Roman person. He was a Jewish person. He was a Jewish man. And they revile him. Then you have the worshipers that are in Jerusalem going to ascend the Temple Mount and sing praises to God. And the very mouth that they, are, they have been given to bring praise to Christ and praise to God is used to mock Christ as they walk the, the Mount to the Temple. Then we see the leaders of Israel the leaders, the, the chief priests, and the scribes. These were those that God had given to His people. He had given them to His people so that they could help His people to see the Savior and to interpret the Messiah and to know that He was coming. They'd been given to them to be able to rightly interpret the Scriptures and to anticipate the coming of the Christ. And yet the Christ comes and instead of pointing the crowds to the Christ, they incite the crowds in a riot saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. Ultimately, Jesus is hanging there and on his right side is a criminal and on his left side is a criminal. And even the criminals, even those that are hanging there suffocating right beside him, muster up the strength to mock him and muster up the strength to revile him and deride him. From Gentile to criminal, all in between, they make a humiliation of Christ and they reject Christ and they are filled with hatred toward Christ. See, the picture, the picture is that the curse of sin infects us all. Whatever class you are, whatever race you are, whatever nationality you are, whatever your background is, whatever your story is, your mind is fallen, your nature is fallen, your life is cursed. You have received an inheritance from Adam and Eve, and it is one of a curse, one of fallenness, one of sinfulness and wickedness. That is, Jesus didn't come to save the Gentiles. And Jesus didn't come to save the Jews. And Jesus didn't come to save the white. And Jesus didn't come to save the black. And Jesus didn't come to save the religious. And Jesus didn't come to save the atheists. Jesus came to save the world. Because it is the whole world that is beneath the, the curse from Genesis 3, it is the whole world, all of human nature, all of this created order that is beneath the, the weight of this curse that the Lord has given over each of us. And so, for each of us this morning, it doesn't matter if you have a criminal record or not, it doesn't matter if you have a Sunday school record or not, all of you need saving. All of you need deliverance. All of you need to overcome the hate-filled curse that your nature bears, the imprint of your original mother and father, Adam and Eve, that has been imputed to you, that you have received from them. But The good news is, the good news is, is that the suffering servant has come. The Christ has come. And he has come for you. Whatever your story, whatever your background, whatever your baggage, whatever your problem, whatever your situation, whatever skeletons you've got hanging out in your closet, Christ has come for you. So we are hateful. We are unjust. We are unjust. Matthew says it almost poetically. Almost poetically. In verse 31, he says, they led him away to crucify him. It's jarring, isn't it? It, It's jarring to have a sentence that is so simple, describe something that is so heinous, so unjust. This is the height of injustice on this created earth. Think of it, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the bedrock of justice, is crucified like a criminal and with the criminals, though he was in his very essence, holy and righteous. Jesus raised others up from the dead, and yet he was struck down. He made others well, yet he was afflicted. He loved the very hardest to love, and his love is returned to him as hatred. He gave bread and fish to eat, but he received from us lashes and nails. He brought healing and salvation simply by speaking it. Yet the voices declare in unison his own condemnation. It is the height of injustice. It is the very picture of our curse that Jesus did not receive what he did not reap what he had sown. No, brothers and sisters, Jesus reaped what we had sown. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That Jesus didn't reap what he had sown. No, Christ reaped what I had sown so that I might receive that which is only rightfully his. So that I might receive his inheritance and I might receive his crown of unfading glory and I might receive his dominion and relationship and access to the fathers. That I might receive his righteousness and his reward. So Jesus received mine. Justice, so that I wouldn't receive justice. Jesus received my consequences so that I would not have to absorb the wrath owed to me. Now, what we should be is like Isaiah, seeing our king high and lifted up and be struck down and undone so that we say, woe is me. I am an unclean man with unclean lips, like a roach running from the light. Sinners should look to the crucified Christ and recoil at the sight of one so holy and one so righteous, experiencing a consequence and experiencing a condemnation so unjust. Christ went to the cross because I gossip. He was crucified because I hate. He died because I lie, and I exaggerate, and I self-promote. He died because I have resentment in my heart, and I have bitterness in me, and I hold grudges against others, and I can't forgive. He died because I am pathetic, and because I am wretched, the one who is wonderful substituted for the wretch. unjust. But Christ gladly went to the cross and embraced our unjust condemnation so that we might justfully receive what is the justification in Christ before the Father. Oh, this morning brothers and sisters, this morning brothers and sisters, do you see the picture of our curse? Do you see the glory of what Christ has come to do? Not only, not only are we hateful and not only are we unjust but we are unbelieving we are unbelieving jesus was murdered first and foremost by unbelief before there was resentment before there was rejection before there was hatred before there was contempt there was unbelief there was unbelief the romans didn't believe that he was the king the the passersby didn't believe that he was a prophet The priests didn't believe that he was the Messiah. The criminals didn't believe that he was the innocent. And so they look up to the Christ, nailed to the cross, the one that had raised their dead and healed their blind, and they say to him, come down off the cross and then we'll believe. Come down from there and then we will believe that you are who you said you are. Come down from there and then we will believe that you are the son of God. Oh God, if you're out there, deliver him and then we'll know he's your son. They saw Christ, and they did not believe. Because you see, Jesus had told them that the temple would be struck down, and when they looked, there was the temple standing. Jesus had told them. Jesus had told them that that he would tear the temple down, and that he would rebuild it in three days, and yet what they saw, what they saw was Jesus hanging on the cross, Jesus being struck down, and the temple still standing there. You see, what they couldn't know and what they couldn't understand was that Jesus was the true holy of holies. Jesus was the true temple and he would be struck down as a fulfillment of the, real, tr- of the w- real temple. That he would be struck down so that in him there would be a new meeting place with God. In him there would be a place in which men and women who were not holy could come into fellowship with the holy God of the universe and live and thrive in joy and that abiding relationship. He came as a fulfillment of the temple and he would be struck down on that day. Oh, but brothers and sisters, though he hung on the cross and it appeared as his defeat, though the building of the temple still stood and showed him as though he were a liar, in three days that temple would rise. In three days that struck down man would be have air in his lungs again, motion in his joints again, and he would walk out from behind that stone that was rolled in his way. Do you believe? Do you believe like the Gentiles believe? Do you believe like the criminals believe? Do you believe like the worshipers believe? Do you believe like all the rulers of Israel believe? You see, they could only believe what they saw and trust what they understood. They could only only believe what they understood and trust what they saw. But brothers and sisters, that is not faith. That is not faith. Faith is going to Jesus on his terms, not demanding that Christ come to you on your terms. Conditional faith is not faith at all. Faith that says, if you'll come down, then we'll believe. If you'll walk off the cross, now we'll believe. What else did they need to see? He had walked on water. He had multiplied a sack lunch to feed tens of thousands. Dead men were walking among them. The demon oppressed were now joyful and alive and forgiven. What else did they need to see? But how often do we go to Jesus just like that? Jesus, if you will fix my marriage, I will follow you. Jesus, if you will rid me of my depression, then I will know that you are the true Savior. Jesus, if you will just give me the life that I want and the life that I prefer and the life that I feel entitled to, then I'll be yours forever. It's a conditional belief rooted in the curse of the garden. It's a conditional faith that is no faith at all, for faith has no contingency plan. Faith doesn't say, if this happens and this happens and this happens, then I will see, then I will believe, then I will trust, then I will understand. No, Faith that saves and faith that transforms and faith that Christ receives and faith that Christ honors is faith that says, Jesus, I will do it your way and in your word and in your timing, I will offer you all of my life for the rest of my life. Whatever that looks like, even though I can't see around the curves, even though I can't see down the future, you get it all. Because even though I can't see, I believe. And even though I can't understand, I trust. So what does your faith look like? Do you see the unbelief in your life this morning that nailed Jesus to the cross that day? Do you see the, the cracks of unbelief and the roots of unbelief spreading their way pervasively throughout the entirety of your life and throughout the entirety of your decision making? The second picture that we see this morning is Jesus taking on our cross, our curse. Jesus taking on our curse. So if we look at Genesis chapter 3, and I, and I would encourage you to do that later on, go to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 16 through 19. But if you look at those passages, what, what you see there are at least at least four different aspects of the curse. Four different aspects of the curse that, that God gave to mankind, that God originally handed over to Adam and Eve, and that, that we, every single one of us, when we have been born, that we have inherited. And what we see in Matthew chapter 27 powerfully and vividly is Jesus taking every aspect of the curse, all four pieces, and taking it upon himself to overcome it, taking it upon himself to defeat it for our good. Think about this. The the curse opens. The curse opens how? That there will be trouble in childbirth, right? That, That from now on there will be pain in childbearing going forward. And we all know, but experientially, all, uh, all of you ladies know very firsthand, right? And, and all of you men know by observation the pain that is involved with childbirth. That you can see the curse there. Sometimes children are born and they're born healthy. Other times they're born and they're not even breathing. Sometimes they're born and they, they come into this world and they're able to flourish and to thrive and to be able to be all the things that their mom and dad want them to be and, and so much more. And other times they come and they are severely handicapped and severely limited. We know, we know sometimes, we can't even imagine the, the number of, of miscarriages that are represented just in this room and the heartache that's associated with that and, and, the, and the the. The time-freezing pain that's associated with that. I know, I know as a dad, every single time, uh, or both times, as I drove Megan to the hospital to, to go and to get our little ones, I had this awareness in me that I was expecting to come home plus one and I could come home minus one. I was expecting to go and and to come home. And we had the, the car seat locked in and ready to go. But in my mind, I always knew I might come home without my baby. And I might come home without my wife. Because we understand from experience, we understand from observation the pain that is associated with childbirth. You factor into this postpartum depression, which is a real and present danger to marriages and a real and present danger to our moms and our wives, these these ladies that we love so dearly, all rooted in this curse. Upon the cross, upon the cross, they offer, in verse 34, they offer Jesus wine mixed Mixed with myrrh. You know why they offered him that? It was, like an, it was to have a narcotic effect. To, to, to dull in the worst pain that he was to experience on the cross. To, to dull in the, the sharpest of the pain so that his body wouldn't go into shock, causing him to enter into cardiac arrest right then and there. And yet, they, they offer it up to Jesus, and Jesus denies it. Jesus refuses it, saying, the cup of my Father's wrath, the cup that is owed to my church, the cup that is owed to my beloved, let me receive it in full. Let me receive it unfiltered. Let me receive it unmitigated. Pour the cup over me. I'm volunteering, volunteering to go in their place, and in all of the pain of childbirth, all of the pain of the curse, I want to know it in full. You see, Jesus reversed birth pains by inaugurating a new birth. By inaugurating a new birth. And Jesus inaugurates a new birth so that each one of us can be born again and he does it at great pain to himself. He does it to the depression of his mother. He does it to the depression of himself as he cries out the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, how have you forsaken me? The second part of the curse that you see in Genesis chapter three is he tells He tells Eve that there will be enmity between she and her husband. That there will be a division between them and that that she will aspire for her husband and her husband will be abusive toward her. That there will be a fracture in the relationship, the, the most treasured and prized relationship, the family, the marriage, the building blocks of all of society, the building blocks of God's whole garden, his whole civilization, the image bearers of the living God. In Hosea, we see Israel pictured this way, don't we? Israel is pictured as an unfaithful wife who has adulterated herself out, prostituted herself out to the world, to the gods of this world, that that she would give herself over to them when she has a faithful husband in heaven. In in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is called the firstborn of God, his firstborn son. And yet, as soon as they have the opportunity, while, while Moses is on Sinai, they go and they melt their gold together, and they build themselves a golden calf, which they bow down to so we see the unfaithfulness of the people of God, the unfaithfulness of the family of God. So much so that when his own son came, he was murdered by his very own children. It was like Cain deceiving and betraying Abel over into the hands of his betrayer. There was division among God's people. There was division in God's family. And so Christ has come as the Son of God to die for the children of God that there might be inaugurated a new family, a spiritual family, a family of priests, a family that cannot be torn down, a family that cannot be divided, a family that cannot be broken, and a family that cannot be stopped. But the earthly family is reversed on the cross into a spiritual family, a family that will never be divided. You'll remember as he begins to talk to Adam in the curse what he says. He says that you're going to live a hand-to-mouth existence. You're going you're to battle with the, with the ground and there's going to be thorns and thistles that, that grow up in the ground and sometimes you're going to have plenty and sometimes you're going to experience famine. Sometimes there's going to be plenty of rain or too much rain and then other times there's going to be a drought and there's going to be not enough By the sweat of your brow, you're going to work this hardened ground and you're not even going to know what it's going to produce. You don't even know what it's going to provide. And that day on the cross, as as the soldiers wove together that crown of thorns, they couldn't have even imagined the irony of that moment as they took the very thorns of the curse, the very thorns of the ground, and they wove them together, and they coronated the king by pressing them on his brow. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus was taking my curse, and he was taking your curse on his own head. Because he was reversing. He was redeeming. He was making new. The cursed ground is being reversed into a new earth. An earth without dementia. An earth without famine. An earth without drought. An earth without frustration and problem and death. An earth of prosperity. An earth without tears. An earth of celebration and praise. And then finally, finally I want you to think of the picture. Adam is told why. He says, if you eat of the ground, you will surely die. And in the last part of the curse, the Lord says, I made you from the dust of the earth and I'm going to return you to the dust of the earth. In Colossians chapter one, it says that all things were made by Christ, for, through Christ, and for Christ. It says that he holds all things together. And yet, comes to the edge of the gates of the city. He comes to the edge of the gates of his city, his back bloodied, his beard plucked, his energy zapped and he can't carry his own cross beam. He's strong enough to bear the weight of the world, strong enough to hold together the molecules of water that fill up the Pacific Ocean yet at the very same time he is too weak to carry his own cross. Because you see The God of glory, the God of sovereignty, the God of power, the God who creates, the God who makes, became a man. He became a man and he knows my plight and he knows your plight. He knows my exhaustion and he knows your exhaustion. He knows my suffering and he knows your suffering. God became a man so that he could take the place of men and die the death of men beneath the curse of men that we might be set free. Jesus came so that death is reversed to eternal life. Death is reversed to eternal life. See, God had given a curse over to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that wrath, in the midst of that suffering, beaming through the darkness was a spotlight, a a laser of light, a laser of hope. He had told Eve, though your children will bear the weight of your curse, there will be one of them. There will be a seed from your womb that will be raised up that I will use to crush the head of the serpent. And I will end this curse once and for all. That by your womb, many will know pollution and many will know despair and many will know misery, but by your womb, they will be delivered. The Son of Man is coming. The Son of Man is coming, and He will squash the opposition, and He will defeat the curse, and He will reverse and redeem the world so that all things are made new. So that day, on that Good Friday in Matthew chapter 27, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus scratched and clawed his way up the mountain, up the hill of Golgotha to his own borrowed cross. He was not scratching and clawing his way up to defeat, brothers and sisters. He was scratching and clawing his way up to victory, to triumph, to my victory, and to your victory. He was climbing his way up that mountain with the last human energy that he had so that the head of the serpent might be crushed, so that my curse might be overturned, so that this world might be made new, so that you and I might be born again. See, this morning, because the curse has been crushed, you can walk in freedom. You can walk in freedom. Christ has defeated your curse Christ has overcome your sin. Christ has received your justice. Christ has absorbed your wrath. So stop living in sin and stop living in guilt and stop living and beating yourself up every time you look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you look to Christ. You look to his righteousness. You look to his finished work. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't don't walk with your head down. Walk with your eyes on the risen Lord Jesus who conquered your sin on Golgotha. The final picture we see in our passage this morning is the father ruling over sin's curse the father ruling over sin's curse so we see man living under the curse we see jesus taking on the curse and then we land on the father ruling over the curse the question becomes how can we be sure no doubt there are some, there's somebody in here of, of some age, from some background, and you wonder, okay, that sounds so exciting, but how do we know? How do I know? How do I know that, this, this is re- that Jesus really was the Son of God? How do I know that Jesus really was the one that we're supposed to be looking for? How do I know that Jesus really is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are made, that is holding all things together? How can I know that? Because this was a pre-written plan. This was a pre-written plan, y'all. This wasn't new. This wasn't fabricated. This wasn't invented. This was expected. I want you to turn back with me now a thousand years to Psalm chapter 22. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. We're going back a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And I want us to read these verses together. These words were written by David. The, the type of Christ, the, the forebearer of Christ. Psalm chapter 22. Let's read verses to 7 and 8. It says, all who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar to you? Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a poster. My tongue sticks to my jaws and lay me in the dust of the earth for your for dogs encompass me a company of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet I can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots does that sound familiar y'all does that sound familiar now read verses 26 through 28 The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You see, Jesus was the plan of God. Jesus was the expectation of God. And Jesus came just like God said he would come. Jesus came just like God predicted that he would come. You see, way back in eternity past, before Adam ever sinned, before Eve ever ate of the tree, God made a plan. God planned the cross. God planned planned the cross it wasn't a reaction it was him reigning over all of eternity past, over all of eternity future to work all things together for the glory of his own name for the good of his own people it was God bringing together his own right righteous and willful plan God planned the beating God planned the humiliation of his son God planned the dividing of his clothes. God planned the crown of thorns. God planned the nails and the mocking voices. God planned this death from the beginning that you and I might be delivered from our death. This morning, this morning at home, there is a faithful servant of God, Bob Pickard. And he is laying in his bed and he is breathing his last breaths. This morning, he, he's there, And his family is gathered by his side, and they're expecting him to pass at any point. And do you know what he used some of his final words to tell them? He used some of his final words to tell them I'm ready to go to be with God. I'm ready to be with God. I'm ready to go to the other side. I'm ready to get to the end and go and walk in celebration. He has lived his final days with a mind racked by dementia, with an arm that has been broken and a body that is failing, and yet Bob is at peace. How is it? How is it that a sinner can find peace in this broken world? How is it that a sinner can find peace in this cursed world? The sinner finds peace because God is ruling over the curse. God is ruling over the curse. God is ruling over dementia. And God is ruling over cancer. And God is ruling over orphan care. And God is ruling over abandonment. And God is ruling over abuse. And God is ruling over the defilement of His own name come to bear in the living Christ Jesus to be nailed to a cross and to work all wickedness into something wonderful for all of us wretches. So whatever you're facing, brothers and sisters whatever is unsettling your spirit, whatever is bringing anxiety into your heart, whatever is depressing your mind, whatever is frustrating you and crushing you and killing you, can I just say, can I just say, God, the Father, the King of glory, is ruling over all that is wicked. He is ruling over all that is cursed, and He is going to bring it to bear in a reversal of roles when you step out of this life and into the next life and walk in resurrection victory. this morning, this morning, don't you come. Don't you come with your head down. Don't you come with a spirit beaten down. Oh no, brothers and sisters, Christ went to the cross and he crushed the curse according to the plan of God that now you can walk in peace. Let's pray together.